you're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So today's reading is Matthew 16, 13 through 27. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do they say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bid on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosened in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders of the chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be risen. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Excuse me. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let them deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what, for what will it profit a man if he gains the, world, the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is the word of God. Pray with me, church. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this beautiful, beautiful morning and this uh, opportunity to gather in this place. Lord, we pray for the families of the kids in the uh, juvenile detention center. We pray for their protection, and we also pray that the time they spend is uh, a good learning time and a time to get closer to you. Uh, Please be with us throughout this week. In your son's name we pray, amen. And thanks for putting the mic up so high for me. I know... Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors um, here. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we hold the term pastor elder synonymous because uh, the scripture has several names for the same uh, position. And uh, next week, uh, we're going to be installing another pastor, Lil Terrell. And uh, we're going to end that uh, service with... Um, uh, a picnic in South Park, and uh, so there's a playground so your kids can run around and play. And it's just a time to really, really celebrate that God has been super gracious to us. And so that'll bring uh, the, the pastor elder body to three again. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know we sent out a church um, in Topeka, and you're going to get an update on that pretty soon um, from Ethan. But with that, we sent out a bunch of leaders, and we also sent out uh, one of our pastors. And uh, through just God's providence, uh, man, Lowell and Heather have been with us for a long time. And man, when I think about them, you know, Lowell has been a faithful, faithful presence for us. Like he is a constant pull for us toward just the grace of God. Like, I mean, uh, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with him when you're talking about something that's difficult uh, or someone who maybe is off the rails, and the conversation turns to some of his story where he just elaborates on the grace of God for him, and then suddenly I feel terrible, like I forgot about the grace of God. Uh, he's also a really constant pull to the faithfulness of Scripture for us. 
you know, I can't imagine or I can't even fathom how many times he's just said something like this. Well, what does the Bible say? And, and so if you've been with us for a while, you know that we typically uh, preach through books of the Bible. And uh, like there's a lot of lofty ideas or reasons why we do it. I usually say it's because I feel like it's the least likely way we'll mess everything up. Like if we're just preaching through books of the Bible, like whatever rhythm the Bible speaks about something, we'll have to deal with it. And so here this morning, we are in Matthew 16. And if you're looking at all the chapters of Matthew, you know we've been here for a little while, and we might be here for a little while longer, so just buckle up and open up to Matthew. But, but in Matthew 16, like what we see is we see actually this really clear break in the book of Matthew. And, and so look, look down at verse 21. Verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem... And then you're going to see words like this, to suffer, to be killed, and to raise again. And and so it says from that time on, like there is this break in the book of Matthew that now we are looking in a different direction. He's literally changing direction in which way he's walking, and he's walking toward Jerusalem. He's walking toward suffering. He's walking toward being killed. He's walking toward a resurrection. And and so what we're going to see, and we we, kind of will speed up just a little bit. I'm okay. Hold on. I got choked up. Not emotionally. I just swallowed wrong. I'm all right. I swear. Um, But we're going to see that this starts to pick up. And what we find here is we find a lot of questions. Like the tensions are mounting. The questions of Matthew have been like, who is this Jesus? What is he all about? What did he come to do? And his reputation of being the Messiah who has come is growing. Like People are starting to talk about him because he is doing incredible things. And so last week, this delegation came out from Jerusalem to say, hey, where do you stand? Are you for us? Are you against us? And they asked a really dumb question. I mean, do you guys wash your hands right? With everything that was going on, that's what they asked. Well, we see another group in front of Jesus, and they have questions for Jesus also. Like the, the questions the religious leaders were asking, like these are the questions we're still asking Like, these are the questions that you must answer. And Jesus finally turns to his disciples and he says, Who do you say I am? Everything hinges on that question. Who is Jesus? And so we have Peter in that moment stand up. And man, just reading this, I like Peter. I like him. Man, Peter is like the bows of of stereos. He is full of highs and lows, almost nothing in between. And so you see these incredible high moments in Peter's life when he nails it. And usually just a few words later, he blows it. And so, I mean, if you look at this, like Matthew 14. Like we just covered that. Like the storm is raging around the disciples. They are struggling at the oars. They see Jesus walking on water and they freak out like it's a ghost. And, you know, we read that like, oh, those silly disciples. What would you do? Like you're dying and you see someone walking on water. And so they all freak out. They're like, oh, it is I. Like, oh, it is I. And so, you know, Peter stands up and says, if it's you, Jesus. Command me to come to you and I'll walk on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter jumps out of the boat, walks on the water. Like this is a high moment. Like this is Peter move to the front of the class, take the dry eraser and teach the rest of the disciples. This is a high moment. Or, or we see it here. Jesus is going to look and he's going to ask, who do people say I am? And he's going to say, listen, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And it's going to be like a gold star moment again. Or you can look ahead in Matthew 26 when Jesus tells the disciples, like, all of you are going to be scattered. You're all going to run away. And he stands up and says, man, I won't ever leave you. I will die for you. And then all the other disciples are like, yeah, I'm with that guy. I mean, what do you say after that? Like, no, I might run. I don't know. There's these high moments. 
But there's also these other moments. There's these moments where that just seem to follow on the heels of these high moments. In Matthew 14, Peter does walk on water, but he takes his eyes off Jesus and fears consume his thoughts and he starts to sink. Or here, Peter's going to be corrected. He's going to get the direction of Jesus's ministry wrong. Jesus is going to say, I have to go to Jerusalem. I will suffer. I will be killed, but I'll be raised again. And Jesus pulls him aside and says, hey, look at the gold star. That's not how this is going to go down. It's going to be different. And Jesus says, get behind behind me, Satan. High moment, low moment. Or Matthew 26, when Jesus reminds him of like, I know you want to run after me. I know you are as faithful as you can be. But you see, you're going to deny me three times. These high moments, these low moments. Like we see this and Man, it's not even going to be the last ones. I mean, you've got Acts 10 where he gets the vision of, you know, the inclusion of the Gentiles. But that's followed up by Galatians 2 when he, you know, doesn't even want to eat with the Gentiles anymore because of peer pressure. Like all these high moments and these low moments. And in all of those moments, there's always going to be questioning that happens inside of us. And what we have here is question after question. Everyone's asking questions you know it makes no wonder like that Peter, or that you know we have like a philippians 3 13 you know it's written by paul but where he says this brothers i don't consider that i have made it my own but one thing i do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead i press on to the goal for the price of the upward call of god in christ jesus And so we see in this life, man, we just keep moving and we keep moving and we get knocked down, but we get up again. Not the song. Don't sing the song. Uh, We just keep striving. But look at Matthew 16. Look at it as a whole. Like first we see the Pharisees and Sadducees, they come with a question. They ask Jesus for a sign in verse 1. And then we get this strong warning. Look at verse 12 where he says, watch out for their teaching." But then Jesus turns and he has a question for the disciples. He says, who do they think I am? Who do you think I am? And that's where Peter nails it in verse 16. And he says, you are the Christ. But then Peter questions and rebukes Jesus in verse 22. And Jesus has like the strongest response we see in the scriptures where he says, get behind me, Satan. And then, you know, the second we see in verse 24, Jesus tells us that we need to question ourselves. What do we think is going to bring real, true, inner, sustaining life? So many questions. So many questions around Jesus. I just want to ask, like, do you have any questions? I guess we're looking at other people's questions and Jesus' questions. Do you have any questions? Is your life not what you thought it would be? Do Jesus' intentions seem off? Like, are you confused about what he is doing or where he is going or where he is taking you or what he promised? And is that ever even going to come true? Like, what are your questions? Or your question is just more about who is Jesus? Can I trust the scriptures? And so as we look at this, I'm going to point out these different questions. And so the first, question number one. And so we see this start in verse 1. And so if you have your Bibles, you're going to have to kind of go right there. And we'll really pick it up in verse 13. But in verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees questioned Jesus for a sign. Like they came and asked him to show a sign from heaven, certainly to verify his authority again. Like they say, we haven't seen enough. We need more to trust and follow you. And so look down at verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus basically says, hey, hey, look around. If you can't see what's going on, like you can understand what's happening with the weather, you're not going to get it. But I do have a sign for you. It's the sign of Jonah. And so, you know, the sign of Jonah, if you're familiar with the biblical story of Jonah, a short book, Jonah was like the worst prophet ever. He was also like the most successful prophet ever. Um, so I don't know how that works together. But what happened in Jonah's life was, G, or was God, sorry, God came to him and said, I want you to go preach repentance that I might forgive Nineveh. 
And so Nineveh was like the, the big army that was rising up and was gobbling up nation after nation. And they had their sights set on Israel. And so Jonah says, I don't want Nineveh to repent. I want them to die. So he runs the other way. He runs. God sends a storm after Jonah. And in the storm, Jonah is swallowed by a big fish. And three days later, he is spit up on the shores of Nineveh. And, you know, you got to know when you've been beat, like what comes after the fish, you know, like what is next? And so Jonah goes in and he preaches to Nineveh. And the message is this. Jonah 3 verse 4 says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. It's not a very good message. He probably didn't deliver it very good. He probably like, hey guys, in 40 days, you're all going to die, you know. I mean, so it wasn't this incredible message, but it was fulfilled. Nineveh was overthrown. It was overthrown not by an army with swords and spears, but by a God with love and grace who responds to repentance. The capital city of Assyria repented and God relented on the coming destruction. And so Jesus says, I will give you a sign, but the sign is the sign of Jonah. And so he says, it's this typological pointer pointing to Jesus' coming death, three days in a tomb, and then resurrection. And this will unleash a message that can save seriously bad people, people like the Ninevites, people like you and me. He says there will be a sign, and it's going to, unleash a message that can save the enemies of God. And so in verse 6, after he says that, Jesus issues a warning about the Pharisees and Sadducees. Look at what he says. He says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so the disciples didn't know what was going on, so they kind of had a side huddle because they didn't know what he was talking about. And they hypothesized that maybe he was talking that they didn't bring bread, but they were like, we didn't know we needed to pack it because you just miraculously made a lot of bread and fresh bread is way better than old bread, so we didn't bring it. And so Jesus then looks at them and then verse 12, he says it very, very plainly. I'm not talking about bread. He says, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so he warns that there's something dangerous in what they teach that enters and spreads throughout our hearts and takes over. He says there's something about what they say that is like leaven. And, and so if you're familiar, like the, the Pharisees were, were self-righteous. Like they were the conservative body of the leaders who closely followed the law and the traditions of the elders. They made up one half of the Sanhedrin, which was the governing body of the Hebrew people. They were Pharisees. Like that term has come to mean someone who is self-righteous, who looks down on others, who looks at what they do and thinks by what they do, it makes them better. And being self-righteous will always eventually need people who are not as good as you to elevate you. And he says, there is a form of a message. There is a teaching that grips our heart, that bends us to work harder and be better. And we depend upon our works and it's called self-righteousness. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great, the great preacher, he said, the greatest enemy of the human soul is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. And so Jesus warns, hey, there's something about their message that doesn't make you look to me, but makes you look to you, your doings. And he says, it's like leaven. But we also had the, the Sadducees. So the Sadducees, we can describe them as self-indulgent. The Sadducees made up the other half of the Sanhedrin, kind of like a checks and balance. And they were the wealthy elites of the Hebrew people. They were more progressive in nature, and they only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the law of God. So they saw the rest of the prophets as not authoritative. And so they didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. See? Kids' church helps. That's why they were sad. They didn't believe in a resurrection. And if you believe this life is all you have, there's a tendency to want to get everything you can out of this life. And so they were more self-indulgent. 
See, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't even like each other. They didn't play nice with one another. And yet they're aligning to oppose Jesus, who is threatening and offending them both. And Jesus says, watch out for the teaching that promotes self-righteousness. Watch out for the teaching that promotes self-indulgence. It is like yeast. It is like leaven to our souls. And he's saying both are sin. Both will cause you to miss me. But both have yeast power in our heart. And so check out this quote. I pulled it from the internet. Uh, yeast feeds on sugar and converts it into alcohol and carbon dioxide through fermentation. Alcohol is useful in beer making and carbon dioxide is responsible for stretching and expanding the dough. Something that we see as dough rises and that's how yeast works. And I don't really understand any of it, but it says that it enters in and it finds something to feed on. And when it finds something to feed on, it grows and it grows and it transforms everything about the substance. This warning says there's a lure of self-righteousness. Do better. Try harder. Be better. And Jesus is saying it finds something inside of our hearts to feed upon and it has this incredible power to impair us and maybe miss Jesus. But he, he also says there's a lure of self-indulgence and it does the same. It feeds upon something in our heart that manipulates everything around us and makes our pleasures and our wants and our self the center of everything. It whispers and demands, get all you can, why you can. He says, don't miss out. It's slipping away. Take hold of it. Take more. And so Jesus warns us about these teachings in our heart. He says, don't miss what I'm saying. Like this is a serious thing in our hearts that can blind us from seeing what we need most. And that is the forgiveness of God. He says it has a transformative power that will take hold of more and more of your heart as it works out. It will turn you in on top of yourself. There's something about what they're saying that is already present in you. That is already present in me. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, man, they're not friends. But they align themselves against Jesus. They say, show us a sign. He says, I've got a sign for you. It's the sign of Jonah. After three days, I'll be in the grave. But it will unleash a message that can change anyone. Second question. Look down in verse 13. The second question, Jesus questions the disciples, who do, who do you think I am? And so verse 13, pick up the story, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, now we're going to deal with that Son of Man in just a second. It comes from Daniel 7, and it has huge implication for what people were wanting to see in Jesus. Huge implications. But we'll pick it up in a second. Verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist, who had just died. Others say Elijah. And others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Now that is a lot of talk going on around Jesus. And so the disciples, you know, were saying, hey, if you're asking what people are saying, we just waited tables for 5,000 men, not counting women and children, and everyone is talking. Like good waiters, like they wait at tables and you got to talk with the people just a little bit, not too much. You can't sit down with them and eat with them. You got to bring food and leave, but get to know them. And they say, man, this is what people are saying about you. And so in Mark and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, they all include John the Baptist, Elijah, and other great prophets. But here in Matthew, he includes Jeremiah. And, you know, so scholars say a lot about why these specific prophets are named. But I think the simplest answer is the best. They said, man, Jesus, we see something in you that these great prophets that we read about who God used mightily, he's using you in the same way. And so it brings this, like, what do the people around you say about Jesus? What, what are the classes you take or the people you work with? What do they say about Jesus? What do you say about Jesus? Like almost everyone elevates Jesus above others in history. 
Almost everyone sees some sort of significance that, man, he had this big, you know, splash on history and, you know, we probably should learn something from him. But it comes down to what do you say about Jesus? And so some people say Jesus was just a moral teacher. He taught a better way. Or some people say Jesus is an example to emulate, like live a sacrificial life and the world be a better place. But like if that's all you think, you haven't read what Jesus says about himself. You haven't read the Bible. Or if you've read it, you read it with a heart full of yeast, full of this power that pulls everything around yourself and makes you think, if I could just emulate Jesus more, I'll be okay. If I could be better and do more, I'll be okay. And he says, it is a dangerous power. Who do you say I am? Look at verse 15. In verse 15, it said to them, but who do you say that I am? And so he goes, let's don't talk about what everyone else says. They don't get to take the test for you. Who do you say I am? And then Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is a high moment for Peter. Probably talking on behalf of the other disciples, probably in those sidebars, they were whispering, man, people are saying, you know, like this might be Jeremiah, you know, come back. Like they're saying he might be like Elijah. People are saying it might be the Christ, the promised Messiah to come. They're saying that it might actually be, he keeps calling himself the son of man. He might be the one to come save us all. And so like they come to this conclusion and he speaks it out loud and he says these three things taken with what Jesus says about himself. I want to look at these three pictures of Jesus. First, son of man. And so Jesus is the son of man. Like we see him refer to himself in verse 13, but over and over he calls himself the son of man. And it refers to Daniel 7, verse 13 through 14, where Daniel has a vision. And in that vision, he sees the coming Messiah and he's in the appearance of man. So he's a human of sorts, but he has this incredible power. And it says that he comes in the likeness or appearance of a son of man, but he's more than that. He comes to rule all peoples, all nations, and all languages. And his kingdom is a forever kingdom that never ends. Daniel sees this one coming who's this conquering Messiah king who establishes a universal kingdom that no one can fight against, no one can defeat. It never ends. Everyone was looking for that kind of Messiah, that kind of Christ. But the second thing, what Peter said, he says, Jesus, you are the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. That is like a very official name. Like Jesus is the expected anointed king of the house of David who would rule over God's people. In 2 Samuel 7, what we see is David's getting older and the prophet Nathan comes to talk to David and says, God has made a promise for you. And he says, God has promised that from your line, a son will come and this son will be called the son of God. And he will establish a forever household of God and a throne that will last forever. And so what we see is Jesus says, I am the son of man who will make a kingdom of all peoples, all languages, and it will last forever. Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one who came from the line of David, but you're actually the son of God. And it's going to establish a throne that will last forever. And then verse 16, we see the last phrase says, the son of the living God. In the, you know, in the Greek language, it actually says the son, the living one. And so maybe the living one is applied to Jesus, like somehow you're the son of God and I don't know how that works out, but you're living and you're here. Or maybe it applies to God. The God who responds to you is alive and active. He's doing things through you. But he says, this is a living God and you are his son. And it's this correlation to Psalms 2. And in Psalms 2, God is the, uh, the son of God is the anointed one in whom we must take refuge in. And the nations are, it says, his heritage, meaning they're his. And the ends of the earth are his possession. Possession means they're his. And it shows this dominion. And this is what everyone was expecting the Messiah to be. And here's Jesus accepting those titles. Who is Jesus? 
I'm the son of man, the Christ, the son of the living God. Like those three powerful strings are coming together to make this super victorious chord. And Peter is saying, Jesus, you are the promised one who has come to save your people. You are more than a prophet. All the people that I was waiting their tables who said you were a prophet, they're fools. You are way more. See, the the prophets pointed forward and said a coming salvation will come. But you point at yourself and you say, I am the salvation. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That is different. Or he said, man, I was at this table and they said you were like Jeremiah. And he said, all the prophets said, come. They said, come, this is what God has says, or thus saith the Lord. But you don't talk like that. You say things like this, truly, truly, I say to you. You stand on authority like no one else. You're different. See, all the prophets came and said, this is how you get saved. But you say, I have come to save you. And look at Jesus' response in verse 17. And Jesus answered Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Like he says, this is a divine revelation, a divine gift. It's not just something you came up with. It's not something that on your power you put all together. This is a gift of God. This is Ephesians 2.8, that it is a gift offered to you. And if it's a gift, it means there's a time that you have to receive it. Who is Jesus? Verse 18, Jesus has a lot more to say. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, Petros. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. And he says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And like the language of that can be really, really tricky, but basically it says, man, whatever you agree with will have already been agreed in heaven and there will be power, staying power, sticking power, loosing power. If it's loosed from the throne of heaven and you agree with it, it'll be loosed here. Like he says, this is incredible. And there's actually this kind of like, kind of reciprocity where, you know, uh, you know, Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus turns back to him and says, you are the rock and the son of Jonah. I know your dad, you know, and you're like, my dad's cooler than your dad. But it kind of this reciprocity going on. But then it builds up and he says, uh, uh, kind of something that a, a lot of Christianity has a lot of difficulty with. I tell you, you're Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church. Like, there's a lot of disagreement about authority with Jesus' statement to Peter, like, you are the rock. And I mean, every time I say the rock, I just hear, can you smell what I'm cooking? You know, I mean, and so he says, you, you are the rock. And, and so like, you know, we can we talk about a lot, like the difference of Catholicism and the difference of Protestantism when it comes to this statement. Like, and I, I would probably just say like, man, there's some questions I want to ask about this. Like, I mean, you have to first look at the thing as a whole. Like, yes, he nails it, and he is the rock in verse 18. But then verse 23 happens. The next moment happens, and the rock becomes a Satan stumbling block. And and so it kind of pulls at some of the authority of Peter. And so, like, just some questions I want to ask. Is this text about a supreme Peter, or is it about a sovereign Savior? Like, is it saying, like, what it seems to be saying is Jesus says, verse 18, I will build my church. That Jesus is the architect. That Peter's authority is completely tied to Jesus' authority as the Christ and the authority of Jesus to give the ability to loosen and to bind as in heaven is kind of the same thing that we all have when we pray in Jesus' name. Or is this text about the necessary, a necessary Peter? Or is it about a non-negotiable declaration? The gospel is primary and necessary. Jesus is Lord. It's about Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the God, uh, who has come to deliver his people. The declaration saves us. It's this powerful thing. Or another question, is this text about an infallible position? Or is it about an invincible mission? Where the gospel is proclaimed, the church will be built. Like, like look at that phrase. I mean, I actually love it when it's translated like this. 
and the gates of hell, you know, will not stand against it. Like, you can't not think about the gates of Mordor and the little army standing up. I mean, you can't not think about it. But it actually says the gates of Hades, and it's a common phrase that means death itself. And so what Jesus is saying is death itself can't stop the church. And he's saying more than that because the sign of Jonah, he's saying, death can't stop me. I will enter through death and I will defeat death on your behalf. But death also can't stop the power of the gospel. Where the gospel is preached, churches are planted, and death itself can't stop it. And we get verses like this, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Or, or 1 Thessalonians 1.5, because our gospel came to you not only in words, but also in power. Or, or 1 Corinthians 1.17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of its power. And so Jesus is pointing an illusion of, Man, all these things that have been said about him in Daniel 7, the son of man who's established a throne forever. And everyone's like, yes, we want that. Or, or, or Psalms 2, the anointed one of God who's going to create a throne that, you know, that, that the nations are his heritage and the world is his possession. And everyone's like, yes, we want that. Or, you know, 2 Samuel 7, where the promised coming king of David is going to stand and he will be like the son of God and he will, his reign will never end. And they're saying, yes, we want that. And so in, in all of the you know, disagreements about authority, whatever that is, listen to what we miss on what we actually agree upon. All Christians, if they look to the scriptures, agree that Jesus is not saying what every other religion says. Every other religion points at a way that you must earn your salvation. And Jesus is pointing at himself and saying, I'm going to suffer and die and I will rise again. And if you look to me, you will be saved. I am the long promised Christ. I am the long-promised son of man. I am the long-promised son of the living God who has come. And so this moment of like, wow, this is incredible. And then he says this, verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to not tell anyone that he was the Christ. And so why did he do that? Because of what he's already warned us about. There's a leaven power in our heart that resist the gospel message. They weren't ready for this kind of savior. So the Pharisees and Sadducees questioned Jesus. Jesus questioned the disciples, who do you say I am? And now Peter's gonna question Jesus. Jesus accepts all that Peter said about him and then confuses Peter by saying that he has come to suffer and die. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. And so when it says from that time on, it means that he is really starting to hammer this idea in. And actually from here on out, we don't see Jesus talking you know, to the multitudes near as often. We see him teaching his disciples. And the message that he's teaching his disciples must all kind of fit in this idea with warnings and affirmation of what follows. That he must go to Jerusalem. That phrase, go to Jerusalem, you know, other translations say go away. But like the, my commentary and you know, several of them said, man, it's kind of hard to translate this because it's kind of saying this radical departure that is stepping into an unsafe environment. And so it says, you know, that he must go to a whole new place, radical departure. And then look at it. It says that he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And be killed, and on the third day be raised. And so he says, from that time on, he said, I must go to suffer to be killed, but I will be raised. And so he says, Peter, you're right. 
I am Daniel 7, son of man, who will set up an indestructible kingdom that lasts forever. He says, Peter, you're right. I am 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. I am the fulfillment of King David's kingship as the Christ. He says, Peter, you're right. I am what Psalms 2 pointed out, the son of God who takes the nations as his heritage. But it comes in a way you're not ready to receive. It doesn't come through victory. It comes through death. That was, a, that was an amen right there. It was really good. Verse 22. It says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. That, that phrase, far be it from you, is actually like a direct, is like, may God have mercy on you. It's kind of like, I mean, like Peter must be from the south. He's like, man, bless your heart, child, you know. But may God have mercy on you. It comes with a lot of contempt. So it's actually kind of saying like, that is crazy talk. Only the mercy of God can help you. Bless your heart. Like he kind of builds this moment where he's like, that is inconceivable. You cannot be the son of man who has a forever kingdom, is going to walk in victory. You cannot be the Christ who is the fulfillment of everything from King David. Or you cannot be the son of the living God and say you're going to suffer and die. But verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance. The word there is scandalon. What you're saying is a scandal. It's a stumbling block for many. It's a stumbling block. Look at what it says. You're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He says, you're a stumbling block to me. Like Peter goes from the rock to scandalous stumbling block in the matter of seconds. Like what Peter is proposing trips a lot of people. It's leaven feasting upon something in our hearts, distorting us from Jesus' message. Like Jesus connects the picture that everyone was looking for, the victorious Messiah King, and everyone was wanting that, but he connects it not just with Daniel 7, not just with Psalms 2, not with 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. He also connects it with Isaiah 53. He says, this victorious Messiah King will also be God's suffering servant. He, he, He looks at Peter and says, yes, I will be victorious. I am the promised king. I I, I am the son of man. I am the Christ. I am the son of the living God. But it can only come by my suffering. It can only come by my death. I am the suffering servant. And then, like, go back and, and look at that verse 23. When he says, you are a hindrance, a scandalous stumbling block. He says, to me. I don't know how this works. You know, Jesus fully divine, Jesus, you know, fully man. I don't know how this works. But he's saying, when you talk, you sound like Satan talked when I was in the wilderness. And he was saying, don't wait for the cross, but take the kingdoms now. Don't wait for the suffering. Just take it now. You can bypass the suffering. He says, there's something that's inside of you that sounds like the temptation that's pulling upon me. And it's dangerous. It's at like leaven. It's like yeast at work in all of our hearts. And so Jesus forcefully confronts Peter. He says, God's kingdom without denying yourself and suffering is so dangerous. Because it's what we all want. It's what Peter wanted. It's what the disciples wanted. It's what the Pharisees and Sadducees all expected and all wanted. And so we see these questions, you know, Peter questions Jesus. And Jesus sharply corrects him. And then we see this body of teaching, starting in verse 24, where Jesus tells us that we must question what we think will bring true, inner, sustaining life. Where do we think real life comes from? And so look at verse 24. It says, Then Jesus told the disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
Notice, the cross of Jesus doesn't mean that you won't have a cross. It means you won't have his cross. And so look at these phrases. First it says, come after me. Like that means being a Christian is looking to Jesus. Like looking to Jesus is not focusing on what seems right to you. Is Jesus is the authority of right and wrong. He's the authority because he's the promised king who has come. But then it says, deny himself. And so it sets the expectation, like, you will have to fight yourself. You will want things, things that won't seem right, you'll want to avoid. You'll have to look inside of yourself, see what you want, and then look at yourself in the mirror and say, bad me. He says, like, there will be a denying, like, you know, the cross of Christ saves us from the penalty of sin, Satan, and death. It rescues us, but there's still a battle. There's still yeast. There's still leaven in our hearts. And so there will be a denying of yourself. But then he says the the worst phrase, take up your cross. Jesus took a cross, but he didn't take the cross, so we would never have crosses. Now, we wear crosses, and we get tattoos of crosses, but this would have only communicated death and suffering and humiliation to them. This means that there will be things that we face as we follow Jesus. Jesus is going to take the cross so you won't have to face his cross. He is going to take the wrath of God to cover your sins, but not, uh, uh, he's not promising that you will never suffer. Taking up your cross is a horrid metaphor of suffering and death. As Christians, we will face suffering, but because Jesus took his cross, you'll never face the wrath of God for the penalty of your sin. Now, Jesus goes on this rant that we need to hear. And so look at this. We're not going to spend much time because we're going to close it out. But there's so much here. Look at verse 25. There's so much here that actually speaks to us. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return of his soul? And so if you look at verse 25, you see the word life twice. And that comes from a word called called suki. And so it means like, it's where you get the idea of psychology. It means like the inner life, the life that you think is going to really bring life. But that word also exists in verse 26 when it says soul twice. And so four times the word is translated in two different ways. At any time you see a word translated in different ways in the same section, it's telling us that there's a lot in that word. You know, Eugene Peterson, in the message, he translates Suki as your true inner self, the truest self that you want. Jesus is saying that there is a way to find this true inner self, but it's not the way you think. It's not the way Peter thought. It's not the way the Pharisees thought. It's not the way the Sadducees thought. It's the way of following Jesus. And specifically, he says, it's the way of laying down. God created a truer you than you currently know. But that true you is damaged by sin. And the leaven in your heart cries for a refusal to yield, a refusal to lay down. But specifically, like Jesus says, come follow me. Even when I lead you where you don't want to go. Even when it seems like, like the wrong way. Even when your heart screams, you know, get all you can. You're running out of time. Jesus says the way is the cross. Come lay down your inner life. Lay it down for my sake. Like that's, that's really important. Look, look at verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But it doesn't change. You have to lay it down. See, following after Jesus is this laying down. Like, and the question is, is there something you need to lay down? 
We, we lay down for Jesus' sake, verse 25. That means on the account of him. That means you look at his life and you make a choice. I'm going to lay this thing down, whatever he's pointing at. We make an accounting of what we see in faith. And it's our life for his life. Our sense of what will bring inner life or inner joy for his sense and his direction of what he says will actually bring life. And you can do it because he's already laid down his life for you. Just listen to the words. Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Or, or 1 John three sixteen. By this we know that he already laid down his life for us, that we may lay down our lives for others. Let me pray for us. As um, the worship team comes up, we're going to have a moment where we uh, have a couple directions and we can move to the front to take communion or we have people to pray for you in the back or you can stay right where you are. But I just want to draw your attention to a couple things. Like one thing, Jesus warns us about a teaching. He warns us about the power of leaven in our hearts. That comes in, in contrast with oftentimes what Jesus points out where he says, I want you to lay that down to pick this up. And so it comes to this specific moment where you just say, do I take into account of Jesus' life being laid down for me? And is that enough in faith that I'm going to trust him to lay this part of me down? Like it comes to a choice. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he just a moral example that you're going to try a little bit better and do a little bit better, make you a better person? Or is he the savior of the world who laid down his life for you and in faith you can follow after him? And if that describes you in a day in, day out moment, then you're a Christian. If that describes you as someone who, man, I struggle, I'm like Peter, I've got highs and I've got lows. And usually my lows come right after my high. But I follow Jesus. Man, we invite you to take communion with us and to celebrate what lay, Jesus laid down, his body and his blood. But if there's something specific that you're like, man, it's just hard for me to lay down, and we'd ask you either to bring that up to communion or take it to someone in prayer, but that you would commit, Lord, I don't even know what all this means, but say it, I lay it down. Father, we need help. Lord Jesus, we need help. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.